Hello everyone and welcome to our November podcast. Um, We have a very exciting episode coming up. Um, We have a couple of our sixth years, Riley, Beth and Victoria, who are talking about the uh, American election. Um, This has sort of become old news almost at this stage, but it was recorded early November and actually before we knew any of the results. Um, We also uh, had Evie going round and taking the temperature the election temperature of our school body uh, so you'll hear some uh, opinions on the election from some of our students um we have a very uh, in-depth interview with professor luke o'neill who i'm sure some people will know as uh, he's been in the media a lot recently doing interviews about covid he's professor of immunology and biochemistry in trinity so uh, he talks in depth about covid the vaccines we chatted to him about his musical career he's a member of a band the metabolics and also about his new book never mind the bollocks here's the science uh, so so interesting to talk to him we also have a um musical item from the chamber choir who sing uh, helpless from the musical hamilton which you may have caught uh, on youtube as it was performed as part of special assembly so without further ado here we go what's up guys <laughs> today we're talking to a bunch of fifth years sixth years <laughs> i'm literally now- your friend about the american elections so uh basically trump or biden so guys what 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 do you think about the wait election? introduce yourselves say names yeah yeah do that my name's victoria um <laughs> i'm Amer- venezuelan american but you know uh, haven't america for a few years though uh, I'm Riley. I lived in America for 14 years and I moved here three years ago. Gotta notice a change in accent. We have. Oh, I'm Beth. I, I, I've been to America once. <laughs> <laughs> Last year. Lost in the You experienced a little too much America. side but he didn't like he's not for trump as of yet <laughs> like yeah. i can really understand people who like don't like biden or don't like the democratic party but i think there's a massive distinction between maybe the values of the republican party and the values of trump and the values of trump are largely like based on inciting hatred even if you look at his speech 
last night, so I think there is like a big distinction there. What was his speech last night? He went on a 17 minute rant about voter fraud and how they're stealing the election and how he should be allowed a second term and it was to the point where the news stations actually won't replay it anymore because it was the most unpresidential thing that's happened in the history of the United States. Yeah, didn't, didn't they, they delete his tweets or something? <laughs> but didn't they also, like, they cut away, like, he yeah. was up for 17 minutes, but like, didn't they watch like five minutes and they were like, no. No, yeah. And he didn't take questions from the press afterwards and there's photos that like it was actually a pre-prepared statement and everything which somehow makes it worse than just him rambling I've, yeah. i have a question how so he's saying it's fraud because it's being posted the votes yeah yeah but okay i do think a little bit how are you know post used to be stolen and stuff so are the people change is he is he weird that people are changing votes and stuff or what like uh, <laughs> like you don't send money in the post there's a few kind of different allegations around it. I know Riley knows more about like the Go ahead, Riley. So yeah. <laughs> uh, well no, I just know like I don't know, it's like two days ago or something, um, during the nighttime they were saying they were gonna like stop counting votes, right? And then the next morning everyone woke up and one of the states had turned entirely blue. And I'm not saying, you know, like, oh it's like completely impossible. But it is it's a little sketchy to be honest, like that an entire state went blue overnight after they said they were gonna stop counting votes. So like, and if they said they're gonna stop counting votes, does that mean they turn cameras off and stuff? Yeah, yeah so cameras no are off. So like, it's it's just a bit sketch. Oh wait, so suddenly they were told to stop counting, and then they were Democrat majority over Republican. Although the one thing there is like the majority of postal votes are Democrat, and like there are really strict processes for verifying postal votes. Like you need to check signatures against like your passport and things like that. So like it is strict, but some states have been like in slightly sketchy scenarios, but. They've had the same thing, I think. I have a question. Why do you think the American elections have such a huge impact on just Ireland and Irish people? The whole the world. world. The whole world's talking about it. Like, what? it never happens with anyone. No, I don't remember it ever happening to such an extent as it has now. Like, even the Hillary, Hillary Trump race four years ago didn't have as much hype as this one did. But that's because we've seen what Trump can do when he let loose on a country. I mean, I would say that... A minority. A bunch, like... <laughs> Almost every other country experiences the same issues that America experiences with like racism, xenophobia, all of that. So Trump just kind of, he represents that hatred and other countries like, you know, with more uh, liberal backgrounds, like they're, they feel like they're not represented, especially since a lot of America, like a lot of our media comes from America. So what we see on TV, you know, a lot of it comes from America. So if we're not being, people are not being represented by the overall like media, then it's just yeah. it's not great. So a lot of people are really concerned for the lives of people in America and the lives of themselves because you know the butterfly effect as well. Yeah. Now we have a performance of Helpless, which is from the musical Hamilton, performed by the Chamber Choir. Bye. 
loved me with Sharon. Ha. Two weeks later in the living room stressing, my father's stone face Professor Luke O'Neill on the podcast, and he's a PhD and uh, it's on the London University and a professor of immunology and microbiology at Trinity. And to date, has written three books, the latest being "Never Mind the Bollocks, Here's the Science," which you just won an award on Post Award for. So, how are you? Not bad. You said the rude word. I'm very impressed. <laughs> yeah, I just went in for it. <laughs> well, it's, it's not really that rude a word, is it? I hope, you know, but uh, it was going to be the same. So uh, we're just going to go right in. We're going to ask you some questions on COVID first, if that's okay. Yeah, far away. All right. So, like, first off, how do you think, oh, sorry, how well do you think Ireland did, like, compared to other countries, like, handling coronavirus? Yes, well, if you're a scientist, you look at the numbers, you know, numbers are very important for a scientist, as you, as you all know, and we're doing well, we're like, I think we're fourth in Europe at the moment in terms of the rate of the virus, you know, in the last um, three or four weeks, we've got the count, the viral count, we call this right down, which is tremendous, because the goal is to get it to zero, then it'll be gone, remember, so the further it goes down, the better, and the last few weeks, we've done very well, uh, we're hoping, of course, it'll continue to go down, and when we get to sort of the 1st of December or next week, I guess, if it's even lower, that'll be brilliant because that means there's less risk of people catching the virus. So we're doing very well overall. And do you think we'll be able to start counting all of the excess deaths, excess deaths, sorry, due to coronavirus? Yeah, well, mission one is to get the deaths down to zero from this disease, remember again. I mean, our dream is that this will not be a fatal disease. 
Now, the good news is the numbers are right down anyway. Uh, they're probably two thirds of where they were back in April, even lower in Ireland, possibly, you know. And that's because they're getting better at treating people in hospitals, for example. Uh, younger people do well anyway. There's various reasons why that, de that excess death rate's coming down. It's so important to get rid of the virus, of course, because then we know, you know, the death rate should go down a lot. The worry always is that what we're doing to contain the virus is causing a bit of harm. So, for example, less people go to hospital for cancer or heart disease, and that contributes to the death rate as well. So we watch this excess death rate very, very carefully, basically, and the hope is we will get rid of this virus and it will go down to zero, or close to zero as we can get it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so a bit more than a week ago, uh, Pittsburgh's vaccine was just proved like 95% effective. Like what else do you think will have to contribute to that? Like, is there any other problems we'll like see with that vaccine? Yeah, the vaccines, we've had good news really with vaccines. So we've had probably five vaccines, I think, to be honest, are showing what they call efficacy, which means they seem to protect against infection, including Pfizer. I mean, that was the first one that came out with 90%. Moderna was about 90% as well. AstraZeneca is a bit strange because they got the trial wrong. You may have seen this, so we're not sure about AstraZeneca. I mean, it's still quite good. I think, I think that vaccine is still working. But what this tells us, we have to see the data. We're waiting as scientists again, it's all about data. So we're waiting to see the data. All we've seen are press releases. Now we're optimistic. Uh, we should see the data very soon. And then next, what happens is very importantly, we have to make sure they're safe. And the regulatory agencies, there's one in Europe, one in America, they're looking at this data very closely. If they say these vaccines aren't safe, we can't use them. If they say they are safe, we can. So we're waiting now for the regulators to give us their opinion. And we trust the regulator. They're very good people in the regulator. So, so we're hoping now we may see one or two vaccines approved for use would not be good because now we can start vaccinating people. And just, a, sorry, a question on the vaccine. Um, a lot of people are saying, you know, they wouldn't take the vaccine because they feel it's been rushed through or it's just not been fully thought out. But then I read, I think it was yesterday or the other evening that, you know, it's not that it's been rushed through. It's just, this is what happens when science is properly funded and everyone gets behind, you know, the cause as such. Exactly, Nathan. I mean, it's an understandable worry, remember. I, I fully understand people are anxious about these vaccines. And our job now is to try to make sure that they're safe and efficacious and that we can convince people. It'll be a job. It'll be hard to convince some people. And some you'll never convince, by the way, for various reasons. Others, and you, you guys, whatever camp you happen to be in, you might decide, I don't like the look of this, you know. My job in the next one, two, three months is to make the case for the vaccines. And you're quite right, Nathan. I mean, the reason why they've gone so fast is effort. The analogy I've used recently is imagine you get someone to paint your house. It might take that person a week. Imagine a thousand people paint your house. It's done in an hour, you know, and that's what's happened here. And the funding, you're quite right. There was no need to write grants or get the, the drug companies and the governments put loads of money into this. Yeah. It sped everything up as well. So, yeah. so it was more a case of uh, everybody rowing in behind it. That's why it's happened so fast. And, and, and as I say, as, once we see the data, and once the EMA and the FDA give their thumbs up, off we go. We can now start using those vaccines. Um, we heard you were in you're, you're in a band called Metabolics. Um, what came came? <laughs> what was the choice of the name? Why did you choose that name? Well, there's the second time we've heard the word bollocks. Alex must be devastated as a school that you people. <laughs> um, well, I work, I'm a biochemist as well. I'm an immunologist, as, as, as we heard, and I work in the immune system. But I was actually a biochemist to begin with. I did a biochemistry degree first. And biochemistry works on a thing called metabolism. 
and it's all about metabolic pathways in your body. What that means is the way you burn nutrients, say, or the way you build power, that's all metabolism. And uh, I, we, we got the band going for a scientific conference in 2017. And because the audience were scientists, I said, let's call the metabolics. So they would have got the joke, you see, the word metabolism, metabolics. Yeah. And then the great joke was someone, several people say to me, oh, metabolics, I've met many zabolics. You know, that, that was the other joke yeah. that was used. It seems to have resonated. And then that inspired the book title as well, of course. Yeah. Um, so how long have you been playing the guitar? Yes, well, I began playing the piano when I was about seven or eight. Uh, my, my poor old grandmother passed away and, and we were left her piano. And I began playing the piano and I began to pick out tunes. Maybe you guys play musical instruments. It's fantastic music. I, I encourage everyone to pick up a musical instrument for all kinds of reasons. Uh, and then when I was maybe 14 in my school, I went to, I went to Presentation College, Brown from Bray. Uh, one of our teachers began a guitar lesson. So I like the sound of that. And I began playing the guitar. So from the age of 14, I began. Guitars were easier because you can bring them to a party. You can't bring a piano on your back, you see. So I realized Guitars yeah. were more portable. That, that was another reason why I took up the guitar. Yeah. Um, and what are, your, what are your favorite moments from playing in your band? Oh, great question. We did a great, I'll tell you something myself. Um, one of our best gigs, Electric Picnic, I'll have you know. That, that was the one before, the, it was the one last year, because there wasn't one this year. And I was invited to do some um, science. They have a thing called the minefield there. Maybe you guys, when you're older, you might go to EP if it comes back. Uh, minefield is kind of a debating area. And they asked me to debate certain things. And then they said, bring your band. So I brought the band along and we did two gigs. And it was great. The crowd loved us, you know. I think they loved us because we played um, like ABBA and Queen, you know, whereas other bands are playing very obscure, like, you know, alternative stuff. So, so the crowd had a bit of a dance, I suppose. And that made it very enjoyable. That's, yeah. Um, so how, have you always had like a passion for music? For music, I have, yeah. I mean, my my, I guess my parents loved music, and when I was growing up, there was always music in our house. And my dad bought me albums and stuff when I was like a teenager. Have you heard of albums? Maybe you guys are too young, but yeah, I heard, they're I heard black things. They're black. You can still buy them, can't you? Yeah. So he bought me some music. I remember that. And then I bought beyond my sister, who was a big fan of the Beatles, and and Simon and Garfunkel, and I used to play her records as well. So. No, I love music. Yeah, and it's, it's not that unusual for scientists to be musicians, actually, because music is kind of mathematical in a way, because the chord yeah. sequence and the notes and stuff, you know. And then secondly, scientists are often uh, musical because they're creative. Remember, to, to, to be a good scientist, you need to be creative, just like a musician, really, you know. OK, I'm just going to ask you a few questions about your book now, the real reason why we're all here, I guess. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to know to start, uh, how did you come up with the name for the book? Yeah, I can tell you that. So, so the book was the, the publisher Gill. They're, they're the publisher you'll see in the label Gill. Yeah. And I'd done a book for Gill called Humanology that came out in 2018. And that was their science as well. It was about the science of being human, I guess, was the topic there. And I covered many aspects of what it is to be a human being, you know, like these chapters on sense of humor, for instance, and music, actually. And then they liked that book and it sold quite well. And then about, so about a year and a half ago, never even more, they said, well, do another one. And I said, well, look, I'm very busy. And then I said, oh, come on, we like the first one. And then they said, why don't you write about like really important things in science and how science can be used to help us with these big topics. And then I wrote the book based on the stuff I was interested in. So for example, there's a chapter on, um, on vaccines. There's a good example of it today, isn't it? You know, there's a chapter on climate change and I'm using science then to inform us. And the goal of the book then was really to say, science can help us. 
they can give us information and then we can use the information to help us in various ways, you know. And then the first title was something like Science is Great. That was so boring, you know. Yeah. And last Christmas, I suddenly had a burst of inspiration. And uh, when I was 14, uh, a band called the Sex Pistols, who you may not have heard of, they yeah. released an album, oh, never mind the bollocks, here's the Sex Pistols. So, so I thought, oh, wouldn't that be good? Never mind the bollocks, here's the science. And the book is really about how science, science actually is about defying nonsense and bollocks, if you will. Like it's designed to, to tell us things that are real and true, you know. And in this age of fake news and conspiracy theories and all that sort of stuff, we need science more than ever. So I thought the book title would be a good way to convey that idea. Yeah, it's great. And you were just saying that there is a very wide range of topics discussed in the book. Um, how did you answer questions on things you weren't an expert in to begin with? Yeah, well, that's always a question. So, so I suppose I bring my scientific training to those questions. I, I, I did um, a science degree a PhD. I've always had, you know, science in my, my background, I guess. And if you're a scientist, you can look at anything scientifically you can, and then use your scientific knowledge and your know-how to judge different things. Now, it's a risk because I wouldn't be an expert on climate change, say. but I do find it fascinating myself. So each topic in the book, I've read a huge amount about. So even though I might be an expert, I'm scientifically aware of those topics, and I could use that science then to communicate it. I guess the other thing to say would be science communication is a separate thing from being a scientist, you know? And for some reason, people think I'm good at communicating science. Like I talk about it in that regard as a community. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I have one question about uh, one of your chapters in the book. In the chapter, why do you still think men are from Mars and women are from Venus? You discuss gender and sex. And you say that on average, men are more aggressive than women. And I wanted to ask, do you think that this is biological or learned behavior? Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating topic, isn't it? And, and in fact, what that chapter describes is all these studies that were wrong. You know, loads of science was saying, oh, women aren't good at maths, for instance. That's nonsense, you know? Remember the old joke, a woman can't drive? Complete nonsense, uh, yeah. totally sexist, you know? And then, and then uh, the science said, that's not true. And then finally, I quote some very big studies. I remember, you got to use data again, really robust analysis and data. Yeah. And all those studies concluded the only real difference, apart from the obvious difference, the only real difference was women were inclined to be more empathic and men were a bit more aggressive. And that seems to be hardwired. And you can see why that will be the case because women have to have the babies, evolution, you know, women are, are, are carrying, a, you know, for six, nine months and then the baby's born. They're, they're, they're going to be slightly more empathic as, as a parent. The man might need to be more aggressive to defend the community against these you know, stone age people attacking them, that kind of thing. So, and that's why men are physically bigger as well, potentially. But these are minor differences. There's some very aggressive women, as you all know. You know, um, there's, also some, there's also some very empathic men. And, and it's, it's this normal distribution. And, and the two curves overlap for maths. You know, like in every biological trait, there's a range of abilities. It could be running, it could be anything, you know, there's a range. Some are very good, some are stuck at most of in the middle. And with maths, they overlap perfectly. With the aggression one, it's slightly more aggressive for men, and then you know that way in the curve, and that way for empathy for women. Then you see a slight separation, but it's quite small. And very often you will find two men, and there'll be a bigger difference between two men than there are between a man and a woman. You know, so you got to be very careful how you analyze these things, really. But overall, the bottom line would be slightly more assertive, you might say, men are, and women are slightly more empathic, and that gives women them. Um, all kinds of skills. I talk about leadership skills, for instance. It's, it's no coincidence that women are emerging as really good leaders because they've got this extra bit of empathy in them, you know. So yeah, it's, it's always yeah, good. It's been very successful. Well. 
Um, and then I'd like to ask on, from your chapter of why do you believe in diets, you basically come down to the conclusion that diets don't work. But yeah. um, for people that need to lose weight, like what do you suggest they do? Well, that was another one I wanted to dig into deeply. Now, I, I would know that would be more close to what I actually know a lot about as a biochemist and metabolism. You know? So um, the Johns Hopkins University did a massive analysis of all these diets to advise GPs because obviously uh, obesity and being overweight is a big clinical problem. It gives you a risk of all kinds of things. And GPs were being asked to recommend certain diets and then they decided to do a big analysis. And the only ones that came out were Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig. Those two diets were scientifically proven to, to work, you know, to have some benefit. Every other diet that was either bad science or no science or bioscience behind it. So the bottom line was those two diets worked. Now, of course, if you want to lose weight, if you starve yourself, you'll lose weight. Of course you will. You know, that's not what this is about. This is about maintaining a normal weight. You know, in other words, if you go on a crash diet, you lose lots of weight. You come back on quite quickly. It's hopeless. You know, these diets like Weight Watchers and um, Jenny Craig, you can maintain a healthy weight, which we all, which we should all try to do because we know being overweight and being obese is a high risk factor for cancer, diabetes, heart disease. You know, so, so the health benefits of actually not being overweight are very very strong you know yes thanks thank you there um and i uh one other question this one's uh, to do with addiction now um there's been studies found where there are genes for uh, addiction genes for cannabis and nicotine um, yeah. has a gene been found for caffeine addiction i think i've got it if there is one because i drink coffee all the time you know <laughs> no well i think many of these Many of these sort of, let's call them drugs, are similar, you know, and often if you're addicted to one thing, you might be addicted to another. And what happens is, what we, what we think is happening with addiction is this. Um, there are pathways in our brain that get triggered to make you behave in a certain way, right? And they make you feel good and you keep doing, it's called reinforcement. So for example, a very relevant topic to us humans is this falling in love, a pathway is triggered. It's a great sensation, you feel great, you know? It turns out many drug, artificial drugs trigger the same pathway and you behave like an addict. Like if you fall in love with someone, you hang around their house, you know, you're waiting for them to bump into them. You're behaving in an abnormal way, <laughs> you know, and we've all been there. Haven't we? so, so it's a bit similar. And these just, just these chemicals are mimicking natural pathways. So very often we'll see a gene in one of those pathways and it's maybe slightly more active. And that might mean that any chemical that triggers that pathway, you might be addicted to. So it wouldn't surprise me if there was a caffeine one that was the same as the nicotine one, for instance. They may be triggering similar pathways, you know? Okay, thanks. And then just another question leading on from that. So uh, for those who are addicted to something like caffeine, is the dopamine, dopamine hit from a cup of coffee or a highly caffeinated, caffeinated drink like a Monster Energy drink or Red Bull, um, is that overriding the part of the brain that controls common sense? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, I, I wouldn't say common sense. It's more like you just feel in top form, you know, yeah. and then you might take, you might be a bit reckless in your behavior. Alcohol does that for definite, for example. That's why we can't have the pubs open, sadly, because it gives rise to reckless, not reckless, but more risky behavior, maybe. So it's not so much a loss of common sense. It's more like trying to have a good time, I suppose. And then you might behave a bit more riskily. Let's put it that way, you know. Okay. So we, we decided that we'd finish off um, with some lighthearted questions. Believe it or not. Great. Love it. We, we have scavenged the entire of Alexandra College for the most um, exciting questions for you. 
So, geez, I'm scared now. <laughs> first, first exciting question. Yeah. If you were an animal, what animal would you be? Good God almighty, what animal would I be? Uh, I would be a big, huge blue whale just swimming around in the ocean. Wouldn't that be lovely? How about that? Blue whale. <laughs> That's based on me not knowing the answer. Oh, <laughs> okay. Oh, wow. Stout or beer? Oh, stout. Oh, I'm a big Guinness fan. Uh, and getting back to our previous thing about the caffeinated drinks, always take everything in moderation. <laughs> That's the trick here, you know. <laughs> I won't okay. overwhelm your body and damage you. You know, I like the odd pint, I must say, but I prefer Guinness to a beer, yeah. Here's quite a controversial one. Trinity ball or electric picnic? Oh, Ooh. good God. Now we're talking. Um, it has to be ET, doesn't it? <laughs> because... <laughs> It's great fun going down there. And we, we, we had our tents in the performers field and we had a free pass for every every uh, venue, backstage passes. That was great fun. So I'd go for electric picnic. Rugby, <laughs> rugby or cricket? I, I, I don't know any sport, so neither. How about that? Here's the one for you. I've no interest hardly in sport. Now, I like watching Ireland play rugby or soccer, of course, you know, because I'm, I'm a proud Irish person, but uh, I wouldn't be a big sports fan, I must say. If I was forced to pick one, well, I played cricket when I was in London. That was one of my hobbies. Okay. And I did quite well at cricket, if I say so myself. I was on the cricket team in the college I was in for a short while, one summer. And I quite enjoyed it out in the sun, you know, drinking cider occasionally. Uh, so I think I got for cricket. <laughs> he can do everything. <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't say that. I was pretty open. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. How many libraries are in Trinity? How many libraries are in Trinity? Good God. There's a trick question. Well, there's the Lecky and the Berkeley and the Science Library. Uh, there's probably five, I guess, isn't there? Do you know the answer? No. Who's asking that question? That's a real nerdy question. Who cares? Wait, wait, do, you, do you have a favorite library? We never use the library anymore, shockingly. Sure we don't. It's all online now, so I never go to the library. Uh, students go. They're more like reading rooms now than libraries, I guess, because everything's online. Oh, wow. I imagine they were used quite often back in the... Oh, they were. When I was a student... Well, can you believe when I was a student, we didn't have the internet, you know, so you have to go to the library. Have you heard of these things called books? You got one, yes. They take a book off a shelf. What a horrible thought that is. That's a radical idea. But uh, no, we used to go to libraries. Of course, the famous library is the long room, where the yeah. Book of Kells is. That's our triumphantly wonderful library, isn't it? You know? Okay, we, we have another one here. Monet or Picasso? Good Lord, these are very specific questions. Which would I, I go I from know. there? I, I wonder who came up it's with It's got to be Picasso, because he's so crazy, isn't he? I love cubism. That's very scientific, isn't it? You know, so I go for Picasso. So you'd go with Picasso? I would because because I love like Guernica's in my book, actually. If you look at my book, there's a, there's a, his painting Guernica was a famous painting when this town was destroyed by the Germans. It was the first bombing campaign before the war started. So I've, I've got a picture of Guernica in the book and that's by Picasso. So I picked Picasso. <laughs> okay. And the last question, what's the first country that you would like to travel to after the restrictions end? Oh, what a great question. Um, I would go to the United States of America. The US of A? I would because I've got lots of scientific collaborators over there that I work with, you know? Like, oh. as you know, scientists, we collaborate a lot. So I work with guys in, in the NIH in Bethesda, in Boston, in San Francisco, and I'd love to go and see them again, my friends, and do great science together. And you need to have a bit of face-to-face. This Zoom thing's all very well, but to make science great again, there's a great phrase for you. 
making science great again. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to meet up in person. And I love America. In spite of all the issues with America, as you probably all would agree, there's great parts of America. It's one of the best places in the world. So I'd go there. So wait, I, do you just like kind of just hang there in a lab and just like cook up? Like, yeah, ocean? hang out. In fact, this time last year, I spent three months in San Francisco writing that book on sabbatical. It was, I lived like a San Carlos in South San Francisco. It was brilliant, you know. Uh, we might wrap it up there. Great, yeah. great questions. Yeah, um, I'd just like to say, uh, finally, thanks very much for replying to my email. Um, this has led to a great conversation here. And I hope you have a rest, lovely rest of your day. Uh, yep. Enjoy the Christmas break. Same to you guys. Have a great Christmas. Don't overdo it now. You know, be, be careful in these few months and all the very best.